Hello, everyone, and welcome to our webinar. My name is Nick Gates, and I'm a program manager at Public Digital, a digital transformation consultancy based in London, where I manage our partnership with ODI, a leading global affairs think tank, as co-lead of the Digital Public Finance Hub. How's that ODI? Uh, the Digital Public Finance Hub is a joint initiative between ODI and Public Digital, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is the second webinar in our Budget Bite series through the Hub, which is looking more in depth at some of the frontier topics and issues in public financial management in the digital era. In our last webinar, we looked back on and reflected on standards for fiscal data exchange, an emerging topic of discussion among PFM practitioners trying to bring fiscal policy closer together with delivery and outcomes. But today, uh, for our second webinar, we're going to be talking about public procurement. Why do we care about this topic? Well, we think that procurement is one of the main levers governments have available to improve the funding and delivery model for digital transformation, something we talked about in our recent papers in March. And it falls squarely within the domain and remit of finance ministries who fund digitalization initiatives, but are also uniquely uh, able to run financial management services and systems, including those behind commercial services and procurement. We therefore believe finance ministries have a key role to play, not just in making public finance digital, but in making government digital. For this reason, we think that a better and more strategic consideration of opening up public procurement and making it more agile will go a long way towards helping governments deliver better outcomes uh, for public spending while improving delivery capabilities using digital technology. But we don't need to just tell you that, uh, we need to let our panel demonstrate it to you through the discussion. The webinar today will be a wide-ranging uh, discussion about how to set up procurement processes in the pre-planning stage uh, to deliver success through procurement and delivery with consideration of their role in delivering better spending outcomes. This is both for procurement and financial management systems themselves, but also IT systems and digital services projects more broadly. By considering needs across the entire commercial life cycle from principles and standards that go into pre-procurement planning, good governance and delivery of digital IT procurement, all the way to post-procurement evaluation. This session will seek to understand how and why principles, standards, and requirements that go into the pre-procurement stage are carried throughout the life cycle and ultimately essential in shaping spending outcomes through a digital transformation lens. We have five speakers lined up for you all today. We will start with a presentation from Warren Smith, who is a partner at Kershaw, a commercial transformation London uh, consultancy based in London. We will then pick up on some of the key themes of Warren's presentation with the introduction of our main panelists for opening remarks, including David Kershaw, also from Kershaw, like Warren, Mr. Godfrey Samaguma from the Ministry of Finance, Planning and Economic Development in Uganda, Lindsay Marchessault, a director at the Open Contracting Partnership, and Snezhna Mitrovic, an advisor for procurement and governance at the World Bank. We will also feature a brief response from Warren and then continue our in-depth panel discussion around what we have talked about before finishing off with question and answer. Uh, to set the scene for his remarks, I will note that Warren has over 25 years experience in procurement and supply chain management across both the public and private sectors, leading transformation projects to introduce new ways of thinking and working in public procurement and contracting. Before Kershaw, Warren worked for the UK Government Digital Service, or GDS, beginning in November 2012, where he was responsible for ensuring that the UK government's digital marketplace directly supported digital, data, and technology reforms, 
introducing user-centered, design-led, data-driven, and open approaches to public contracting. Uh, but for now, I will turn it over to Warren, uh, who will give us a bit of an introduction to Kershaw, the work they are doing on agile procurement, and his views on this topic. Thanks again to their team for helping us to plan and deliver this webinar. Warren, over to you. Thank you very much, Nick. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm just going to share my screen and I think I'll, I'll kick off with um, the introductions of who we are. But you've very kindly um, introduced me uh, as, uh, as, uh, as planned. So we appreciate that. Um, I'm going to first set this in. Hopefully you can see my slides. Just check in. Big yes. pink one at the beginning. Great, great. Um, <clears throat> looking a, a really around the world with some reflections on uh, what we're seeing uh, as commercial commercial to see some of the the really shining lights of of uh, good approaches in this uh, in this space so um but first i just wanted to start by sharing why we really need to be caring about public procurement um, a report from the open contract in partnership and spend network uh, estimates that globally governments spend the equivalent of 13 trillion US dollars each year on public contracts for goods, services and works. Yet the report also states that less than 3% of this amount, so 363 billion US dollars is published openly. The issue with that is that opaque contracts that miss information about businesses, shuts out journalists and civil society from analyzing and interrogating the data. The OECD's report preventing corruption in public procurement found that the cases reviewed under the uh, convention of bribery of foreign public officials in international business transactions, 57% occurred to obtain a public procurement contract. The same report also states that 59% of foreign bribery cases occurred in four sectors, extractives, construction, transportation and storage, and information and communication technology, so ICT. Recent research by the World Economic Forum suggests that public procurement activities are directly or indirectly responsible for 15% of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's seven times the amount of, uh, emitted by the entire aviation industry. But despite the huge amount spent each year, a report titled Empowering Women Through Public Procurement by the International Trade Centre estimates that women entrepreneurs win only 1% of all public contracts. So public procurement is therefore a critical yet largely under leveraged area of public policy that governments can use to address all of these issues. So in order to address these issues, wholly digital approaches uh, must be indivisible from public procurement. And by digital, I always return to the Tom Lusmore's excellent definition, which is applying the culture processes business models and technologies of the internet era to respond to people's raised expectations. But what does this mean in practice? So at its heart, procurement has to be about delivering social value for public money by focusing on understanding and meeting users' needs. So to support this, objective decision-making throughout the public spending life cycle is absolutely essential to form and fund empowered multidisciplinary and cross-functional teams we're working collaboratively with supply partners from both private and social sectors. It's important that we're not constrained by conventions of the past and we seek out opportunities to experiment, 
trying new things and openly sharing what we're learning on the way. It's okay to make assumptions, but these need to be tested as our understanding of users' needs increases. Getting something in front of users is better than spending lots of time and money on over-engineered solutions that may or may not meet user needs. And that way we'll learn quicker about what's working and what isn't. Short feedback loops through iterative development and testing helps to minimize the cost of change associated with more experimental approaches to meeting user needs. So effectively, what I'm talking about here are the characteristics of agile delivery applied into a public procurement context. So digital commercial represents a paradigm shift in government procurement. And it's an important part of the broader emerging paradigm of digital public financial management that the ODI and public digital have been working on. Digital commercial calls for a golden thread throughout the whole public spending lifecycle represented by a consistent set of principles, practices, ways of working and standards-based governance to optimize decision-making and collaboration. This will help to maximize transparency, objective and evidence-based decision-making and competition. In turn, this will also help to promote a culture of integrity and responsible business conduct. There's an increasing number of governments at all levels, national, federal, state, provincial, and city and municipal, who are embracing standards-based approaches at different stages of the public spending life cycle. I've included um, some of them here and each with links to where these have been published and uh, I imagine that these slides will be shared um, afterwards so you can see those for yourself. But ultimately, such approaches should support government's economic, social and cultural and environmental priorities and deliver impactful outcomes that benefit people and the planet today and for future generations. So I'm going to go through some examples from around the world where we've seen these changes being implemented. Uh, among other sources, I've borrowed very liberally from the Open Contracting Partnerships, very excellent source of information and inspiration, and I would encourage everyone here to do the same. First, how open contracting is improving climate resilience in uh, flood-prone Assam in India. Now, this state experiences um, widespread devastation and damages from floods, and to support the recovery, the government provides flood relief funds to district authorities and departments and typically makes decisions for funding allocations based on a first-come, first-serve approach. So in the past, regions that were slow to ask for the assistance were left behind and authorities lacked the capacity to understand if spending meets the needs of the most vulnerable or whether it's helping build resilience to cope with the uh, future floods. And there's no centralised overview of budgets and expenditures for long-term climate action. With OCP support, um, Indian Civic Tech Initiative Civic Data Lab, or CDL, worked with Assam authorities to better protect vulnerable communities from extreme weather events through implementing open contracting strategies to better flood-related procurement. Core to the team's approach was developing a sophisticated data model to determine the most critical areas of the state in need of investment, and so rating each district from flood proneness, preparedness, and losses. This model was made possible through CDL collaboration with the Assam State Disaster Management Authority, or the ASDMA, to combine procurement data with dozens of other data sets, as well as working with the Assam's finance department to structure and standardize data on all flood-related procurement from the last five years. 
ASM authorities are now able to make better evidence-based decisions around how flood-related funds are spent. And for example, in March this year, 95% of the budget for the latest round of flood-related spending went to the six out of 10 districts that were identified by Civic Data Lab's data model as highly vulnerable to flooding. And this will also be used to mostly procure for repair and restoration of roads, bridges and embankments, benefiting approximately 6.5 million people. And using the data model also promises faster and better future disaster planning. And initial trials show that measuring disaster preparedness using the data-driven approach would require only 33 district representatives compared to more than 150 staff uh, currently. It would also allow for the preparedness to be measured more often and with greater precision and deeper granularity. So it's thanks to this multi-sector collaboration that Assam also became the third state in India to introduce a green budget committing the equivalent of uh, 2 billion US dollars for the 2023-24 financial year towards a state level action plan on climate change. And in addition, a formal agreement between ASDMA and CDL is set to institutionalize this decision-making framework in the state government over the next two years. Next, it's looking at the um, bicycle hire scheme in Mexico City, which after 10 years of operation, they sought to expand um, this initiative called EcoBiki, and which is their environmentally friendly and affordable bike share service uh, to more neighborhoods and to upgrade the design and technology and all at a reasonable cost. The city needed to promote competition in a concentrated marketplace, learn more about the latest bike share technology and innovations and provide a better and expanded service at the same or lower budget. The city used open contracting to design a transparent procurement process to procure a modern, expanded and user-friendly bike share network. And the cross-departmental team used new strategies and a strategic communication framework to engage vendors openly from around the world throughout the procurement process, as well as to solicit user feedback. Mexico City's new contract expands the service from 6,500 bikes to 9,300 and from 480 bike stations to 687, as well as upgrades the city's bike share technology and design to be more user-friendly, all at approximately half the operating costs of the old service. Other departments have also begun to replicate EcoBiki's open contracting strategies for important strategic public projects. And the city's also enhanced its e-procurement system to help others use the approach for engaging vendors, citizens, and civil society organizations early in high priority procurement processes. Next, we're going to look at Mongolia's um, uh, approach to helping to overcome a situation in their economy, which is dominated by a large uh, state-owned mining companies that control much of the country's wealth. But what they do with that money remains largely hidden. A series of scandals shows just how little accountability there is. And to tackle this problem, the country has proposed wide-ranging legislation including anti-corruption packages with measures to standardize the operation of Mongolia's state-owned enterprises and also to ensure that they follow consistent rules throughout processes like tendering and procurement, uh, among other things. The public oversight 
uh, is also seen to be a really important part of the solution. So commitment in uh, Mongolia's open government partnership action plan proposes to engage with civil society on public procurement. But effective implementation of these plans is being hampered by a lack of reliable, factual and understandable information sources for citizens and civil society to monitor the operations of these mining companies for efficiency and corruption risks. And this is where OCP's work at the Mongolian Data Club comes in. They designed a data analysis project to show how public open data sets can be used to uncover important issues and also to bring public attention to who's supplying what, for how much, and whether there are any links between suppliers and the high-ranking public officials. As part of that project, they developed two data-intensive but user-friendly tools for CSOs, civil society organizations, uh, and journalists to help them write data-driven investigative stories. As part of the data journalism program, with the support of uh, the non-government organization Open Society Forum and the international project Open Extractives, they built the capacity of journalists to work with data analytics tools and also to dig into power brokers for the country's uh, mining companies along with their spending and their procurement. And a group of journalists found links uh, between politically exposed persons in a coal transportation company with the help of these tools. They revealed that only five beneficial owners or umbrella companies uh, owned 30% of the total permits that authorized companies to transport coal between Mongolia and China. And so using this data, the journalists challenged decision-making to fulfill their responsibility as stated in their policy to allocate permits fairly. Another great example from OCP is on the city uh, of Des Moines in uh, Iowa. We uh, wanted to leverage procurement to improve equity and sustainability, but they knew that their current procurement processes and tools were insufficient. Uh, these were, weren't very friendly uh, to new vendors, uh, and also this led to low levels of competition and also low levels of bidder diversity. They didn't have a good data to inform uh, for their improvements. The city implemented an ambitious comprehensive reform project to digitize and open up procurement and also to integrate its equity and sustainability values into processes. New strategies included implementing an online bidding platform, piloting approaches to vendor outreach for high priority purchases and incorporating bonus point questions for sustainability and equity in all their requests for proposals. Now, after a year after the launch uh, of the new strategies, vendor registration has tripled with local businesses representing uh, just over 20% of their suppliers with 9% being women-owned and 6% minority-owned businesses. Currently closed and awarded bids can now be found online, increasing transparency throughout the process. City employees are now also able to collaborate on procurement more efficiently and better plan and track their aspirations around equity and sustainability. They've also made some noticeable successes in terms of updating the city's fleet to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by up to 95%. It's incredible. Um, so just moving from uh, the OCP's rich bank of resources, um, this one's from UN Pulse Lab Jakarta, uh, and they worked in collaboration with UN Women on a project which showed the importance of including women in the planning and implementation of safe, sustainable cities. 
Some of the issues that they identified uh, were around city planning, which often neglects the needs, interests and routines of women and girls. Existing literature on safety and mobility for women was not sufficiently diverse and also little attention on women working at night who make up a significant part of Indonesia's retail economy uh, was an issue identified um, in the early stages of this project as well. So the proposed recommendations concentrated on improving infrastructure rather than the experience of women getting to and from work. The new approaches that they took focused on female users of public transport, and this included carrying out uh, diary studies, face-to-face -face interviews and field studies, and also developing female user personas, and it involved the people that could actually change things. They used new techniques like co-designing solutions to address the problems that were identified, and they piloted, tested, and then scaled these and shared the lessons learned. Some of the key findings that they uh, unearthed as part of this project was that in-depth user research was really fundamental to helping to design cities in a gender-inclusive way, and also inviting stakeholders to meet users is a really effective way to encourage change. <clears throat> Um, so moving on to New Zealand, so uh, despite their reputation for very positive relations with indigenous communities, New Zealand still sees significant inequality between these groups and the majority population. In the digital and technology sector, this disparity is even starker. Just two and a half percent of the Maori workforce are employed in the IT and communications industry, and only one percent are studying technology subjects in college. Government procurement projects, although open to all, are often seen as kind of out of reach for the SMEs that make up much of the indigenous economy. In 2019, the New Zealand government began including detailed social and environmental goals as part of its broader outcomes procurement approach. The departments were told to consider how they could create opportunities for indigenous and regional businesses, as well as social enterprises. And so the approaches that were taken to achieve this included uh, sharing information early and designing services collaboratively with indigenous groups, simplifying procurement documents and avoiding the use of complex technical requirements, as well as considering indigenous concepts such as extended family when designing services. And the final example that I want to talk about is one much closer to home, and this is in terms of the Welsh government and the work that we're helping them with on a project called KEED, uh, which is Welsh for uh, a togetherness, a oneness. And this is all about helping to create a collaborative space for procurement and commercial communities in Wales, very much looking across the whole public sector to bring together the profession, to share insights, share lessons learned, uh, to share what works and what doesn't, to help build the capability and capacity across the entire public sector. And this includes uh, identifying uh, case studies, um, toolkits that already exist, um, and other training opportunities with a particular initial focus on achieving net zero um, and decarbonisation through public procurement, which is a key Welsh uh, target. So this has been running for just over a year now, um, and the project's been shortlisted for the Go Awards Wales, which uh, uh, we very much hope that this will be successful, and we'll learn about that in a couple of weeks' time. So just a collection of some examples of um, uh, exa uh, from around the world of, of organizations and people coming together to address taking more and modern approaches to public procurement. Um, another useful compendium is one that was um, launched by the 
the United Nations International Telecommunications Union uh, the, and their United for Smart Sustainable Cities initiative, uh, which was published in May this year. And so the, um, the U4SSC is a global UN initiative that's coordinated by the ITU, uh, the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe and the UN's um, Human Settlements Programme, UN Habitat, and is supported by a further 16 UN agencies and programmes. And so that provides a platform for information exchange and uh, partnership building to guide cities and communities in achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so this is initially focused on um, helping city administrations, but the, the principles and the methods and the approaches that are uh, codified within the procurement guidelines can actually be applied uh, across uh, other public sector organisations as well. <clears throat> so just to wrap up, um, I'm, I'd like to just really focus on like, are, is procurement asking the right questions? So in terms of um, community needs, does, is the, uh, the design approach of the procurement team, does that focus on meeting the needs of citizens, businesses, social enterprises, et cetera? If the answer is no, then I think possibly there's, there's not getting off to the right start. Um, is the uh, organisations thinking about the opportunity to reuse existing uh, technologies in terms of digital public goods and infrastructure and consume data that already exists before considering what to buy and before considering what to build? And so um, I think there's a very interesting opportunity and a very important one to take that kind of reuse and consume before buy, before build approach. And when looking at buying, then there should be a, a much more focus on cloud-based commercial off-the-shelf software. And if building something, looking at what already exists in terms of building blocks for new digital systems, so that might be design systems or pattern libraries. And anything that does get created as a new service should contribute to the increasing, uh, increasing global ecosystem of digital public goods and infrastructure so that others can benefit from that too. Um, is the procurement team asking what capabilities do we need now, next and future? Are they working with the recruitment um, teams to help to plan that so that the, the, the profile of what's needed from the market and the profile of what's needed in terms of talent and supply from uh, uh, in terms of recruitment are hand in glove and making sure that any contracts for supply of um, services and capabilities includes transferring knowledge and upskilling from the private and social sectors into the public sector. Um, in terms of collaboration, um, how is the procurement team helping to bring people together within the organization across different functions? So that could be legal, policy, digital data and technology, uh, project delivery, but also outside of the organization. Who do we need to bring in that are working closely? And social enterprises is a great example here, non-government organizations as well. Um, making sure that everybody who has a role to play does also have a voice at the table that's facilitated by public procurement. And finally, um, how do we demonstrate the impact and benefit both from an economic, environmental, social and cultural perspective? And I would um, strongly uh, suggest that if the procurement practitioners aren't um, measuring themselves on the ability of their role to achieve these things, then possibly then monitoring and, and measuring the wrong things. That brings me to the end of my presentation. Thank you very much. And I look forward to the discussion that's followed and to take any questions 
that may arise. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much, Warren. Um, very great presentation. Um, so the framing question for this webinar was, can agile procurement and digital transformation improve spending outcomes? I think Warren gave us some pretty clear examples of how um, procurement, public procurement that is, is becoming more agile, but also the ways that it can lead to better outcomes through some clear case studies. Um, but that requires a lot of effort and intention, and that doesn't mean just thinking about the status quo or the financial bottom line. So uh, I wanted to use our panelists to come in and add on to what Warren talked about and kind of pick apart kind of different aspects of that and, and trace the entire procurement life cycle uh, to see how we can actually get better spending outcomes through public procurement. Uh, the first up on our panel is David Kershaw, who is uh, Warren's uh, colleague and a founding partner at Kershaw Consultancy. Uh, there, David heads up the procuring and supplying digital practice with their wider team and their pool of expert associates, helping organizations use agile principles to deliver outcomes through procurement. David is one of the UK public sector's foremost and respected commercial delivery specialists, having advised and led some of the most innovative digital and technology procurement activities of recent times in the UK public sector and overseas. Uh, David, I hope to come to you first because I wanted to get your reactions to Warren's presentation uh, while acknowledging that a lot of this thinking is informed by your work together. Um, in particular, though, I was hoping you could use your remarks to dive deeper into that pre-planning phase of procurement and discuss its importance, given that it's where many of these standards and principles um, that are put in place often become fixed due to the historically rigid nature of that process. Um, but that can also be a good thing on the flip side. Um, so Warren kind of spoke a bit about that need for a principles and outcomes-based approach but I'm wondering how you think we get away from a culture of specifying all the requirements up front and allow for more uncertainty and change in that stage, perhaps? How do we get past that kind of binary choice of build versus buy that Warren talked about, or is that even possible? Um, over to you. Yeah, um, thanks, Nick. Hello, everyone. Morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world. Um, you, uh, a few sentences ago, you said pick apart, pick apart what was going on. So the first things I'd pick apart is, word procurement and also the word spending. Let's not just think procurement is spending money. This is tax, in fact, it's not just taxpayers' money, right? We are we are using taxpayers' money. We are using the money of visitors, citizens, others. We've got this pool of money and we just, in procurement, we just think we spend it on, on things like phones and it. That's not what we should be doing. We need to be investing every pound, dollar, euro into something. Warren talked about some of the amazing um, investment stories that he spoke about globally, and they are really important. We, we need to sort of remember everything we do is for the, the wider public uh, public purse and also the wider public purpose. I sort of made a few notes as Warren was speaking, and a few things I just wanted to make sure the listeners are aware of. You know, as I mentioned, Think of those people as citizens, taxpayers, visitors, and others, but also think about the markets. It's really important to think about the market. The market is not just suppliers. They only become suppliers when they're actually supplying something. You've got to entice them in. You've got to say, come and look at this big change program, transformation program, uh, shift of, 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 of change we're trying to do. Come and help us and be part of the multidisciplinary team and work with us to change. And... Um, procurement i would call it commercial personally i really try not to say procurement i have to because it's still le legally labeled as procurement but 
Think of the whole commercial life cycle. And that starts at the end of what you've got now. So if you've got a really big, complex uh, contract that you need to break up and kick, kick, kick about a bit, get those current suppliers in, those current vendors in, and talk to them and ask them what's wrong about it. That then brings you into sort of the pre-procurement stage where uh, I don't call it pre-procurement, I call it market engagement because you're engaging with the market. And, um, you know, we have one mouth and two ears. So when we when we go and talk to the market providers, let's say, hello, how could you help us? And then let's listen to them. It's important we're open, fair and transparent. It's important that we have formal contract notices um, and we place those contract notices online. They are the former anchor points to make sure we're legally compliant. But let's have um, blog posts. Let's have YouTube videos. Let's share some of the knowledge. So if you're a if you're a uh, a taxpayer or a resident in a local area, be it a city, a national government, or a local small parish council like we have in England, um, let citizens see how you, as a public uh, a uh, contracting person, a procurement person, a public finance person, how you are spending um, or investing in, in sort of my formal words, investing uh, that that money so they can see um, the interactions. I also just mentioned a few other points, which I think is important from my experience. Um, don't be scared of collaboration. Collaboration is the best thing because... I was a former civil servant. I had to send these messages out and I had to wait for a certain time to respond. And these responses I had just were inaccurate. Collaborate, invite the players in and listen to um, what the market thinks you're doing with the requirements, the outcomes, the terms and conditions, the invitation to tender. Uh, the list goes on. So collaborate, um, share, constantly share. Warren, myself, and members of our team always say to our clients and colleagues, it's better to share small sort of uh, small bites as such um, rather than wait for a whole year to end and just tell people then. Um, and also, I talk a lot about minimum viable procurement. Of course, I did because it's a well-known well sort of... Uh, acronym that I can kind of uh, jockey on and, and, and push procurement forwards. But minimum viable procurement is about adhering to the legislation. I mean, you should do that. Just it should be baked into what you do. But think about how you can apply modern ways of working. As I mentioned, collaboration, but right through to how do you contract for agile delivery as well? I'll stop there, Nick. That's quite a, a barrage of information. Yeah, I love the... Uh the concept of minimum viable procurement as a way of, of kind of saying, how do we get beyond that and have the rest of our discussion engage with that idea? So thank you so much, um, David, a lot to think about. Uh, next up, I wanted to come to you, Godfrey. Uh, so Godfrey Semaguma is acting director of financial management services at the Ministry of Finance, Planning and Economic Development in Uganda. Uh, he is a professionally qualified accountant and ICT practitioner with over 25 years experience. Um, at the ministry, he is a member of the top management team and is responsible for implementation of PFM systems that have enhanced efficiency and accountability in management of public resources in Uganda. 
Uh, Godfrey, I wanted to try and understand your views on how to begin moving from that kind of pre-procurement planning into actual procurement and, uh, of course, delivery. So uh, Warren and David talked a lot about the importance of following the money uh, and encouraging civic engagement and kind of um, co-creation to keep the procurement process honest, to move beyond that, that minimal viable procurement, so to speak. Uh, but could you talk us through what good governance of the procurement process looks like and how you actually ensure those principles uh, find their way into procurement and delivery processes, as well as the ways of working, um, and what can happen if things go wrong. Um, especially curious to hear your experience working on financial management systems in Uganda, and you know, kind of what it went to, uh, into reforming the system there. Um, over to you. Okay, thank you, Nick. Uh, true governance, governance, of course, uh, plays a very big role, not only for procurement, but in our daily lives, whether it's managing a country, managing any financial management system, but specifically for procurement, uh, there are many actors and uh, everybody looks to the system to be transparent, to be fair, to be competitive. And uh, no matter how good the systems are, no matter how the procedures are, you have people superintending over these systems and processes. So clearly this whole value chain in procurement from planning to bidding to evaluation, to contracting, to contract management, there are many actors and there are many processes, but also in the, the environment surrounding the procurement process, you have laws probably made by the legislators you have government, which is uh, maybe executive, their interest is either delivering service to the people. You have oversight agencies uh, that have to ensure independently that you're delivering value for money. You have civil society that's putting either government on, uh, you know, uh, uh, creating a certain sense of agency and transparency. But you also have the public that expects service from us as well as. Uh, there's also the whistleblowing community, which is out there, judiciary, everybody's there. Now, within this continent, I think everybody, first of all, each of us has to play their role. If any of us does not play the role, that's probably the weakest link in this whole chain. Uh, think of it like uh, probably a bicycle chain. It has so many segments, but if one segment is broken, then you can hardly move. So the extent may not be that it's exactly broken, but it's weak. So if any of these institutions in terms of governance is weak, whether it's the implementers, whether it's the legislators, whether it's the judiciary that listens to this, whether they're tribunals, oversight agencies, the regulator, there is something wrong. So it's very important that we focus uh, our effort in ensuring that each of them is strong, but also that each is allowed to independently operate. Secondly, I think there is need for collaboration. Independence and collaboration sometimes don't work together, but uh, it's very, very difficult to be extremely autonomous of each other, then you don't connect the dots. Uh, but it's very important that say, if issues are raised by the Auditor General, then Parliament will take action, the, the, the institutions, the, the implementing agencies will take corrective actions, uh, if the Ministry of Finance thinks there's a problem, it goes out, consults the public, the public brings in feedback, and then you re-engineer re your systems. So it's very, very important that we acknowledge that uh, 
this value chain, procurement value chain, has many actors, many of them facilitated by legal frameworks. Uh, sometimes you don't even have a lot of leverage over them, like the legislature. They could easily give you laws, but you cannot implement. Uh, so, so, so you have to make sure that they are knowledgeable through the engagement. So if you leave them to stand alone, uh, it also breaks down the governance system. But uh, in summary, I think that uh, it's very important that you have the uh, integrity of that governance structure. It's very important for public procurement. Great, thank you, Godfrey. And I think we begin to see why kind of that pre-planning stage is so crucial because it's the point where you can establish those those good governance uh, mechanisms and ways of working that trickle um, down the line. Um, Godfrey, brief follow-up before we move on to our next panelist. I just wanted to maybe have you chat a little bit more about the experience in Uganda and kind of um, maybe just talk through a little bit more about how you went through the process of enacting the legislation, bringing together different actors and, and any lessons you learned in particular that you wanted to highlight briefly. Okay, so in terms of uh, the legislation in Uganda, we have uh, the ANCA law, which is the Public Procurement and this was a Public Assets of, uh, Act. Now this law, uh, unusually, we had an institution, or, or let me say that uh, there was no procurement policy. Typically, you have a policy, then you have legislation that comes from the, uh, the policy. So what was unusual in Uganda is that you had the legislation first, and then we had to work backwards to put in place a procurement policy. Now the policy is much broader than the laws because there are many things that the policy activates that don't, need, don't have to be in legislation. But let me say uh, this process, we have two institutions which are major. So you have the ministry that does policy and then you have the regulator, which is the procurement authority. And uh, many times the issue is who leads. So the ministry by law is the one that leads in terms of this legislation. But the regulator has very strong input in, his, in this. But what I saw typically is that the regulator has interests and the ministry has interests. So sometimes these interests are at odds. So you have, and the whole legislative process moves like that. When you go to parliament, there are many competing interests. And I think what is more agonizing is that uh, procurement systems that are anchored in laws like public procurement, the process of legislation is too slow to cope with the pace of reforms that are happening or the agency or the innovations that are happening. So by the time the legislation comes out, you have probably the principles have moved, the fundamentals have changed. So you have a law, then you have to bring in regulations. Uh, an example is that we enacted, we made amendments to our public procurement act two years ago, but some regulations are not yet in place and it's two years late. So you're trying to regulate something and by the time the regulations are out because of the bureaucratic process, which you have to comply with, then the fundamentals have changed. You almost have to amend it before, you, before it comes into force. I think that's part of the frustration of public procurement. But anyway, that law is very prescriptive and the regulations are very prescriptive. And sometimes you have very little leverage in terms of innovation. So even when something I've, I've listened to David, I've listened to Warren, there's a lot of encouragement on innovation, but uh, within the laws, 
sometimes it becomes very restrictive in terms of how much you can innovate. Yeah, and I think this is one of the recurrent themes we see uh, talking to many governments is kind of this pitched battle between kind of the legislation on the one hand and the impulse to do more uh, through a kind of an agile delivery lens on the other. Uh, Warren, I do want to come back to that question with you and kind of talk about the UK's experience and maybe some other government's experiences. Um, but I did want to bring in Lindsay to the conversation too. Uh, so Lindsay Marcheseau is a director at the Open Contracting Partnership, where she leads their team for data and engagement. As part of their senior management team, um, she helps to direct OCP's strategy and organizational stewardship. Lindsay leads OCP's engagement with country implementers and international institutions oversees their technical assistance to partners and manages their data uh, team. Importantly for this conversation, uh, she also oversees OCP's research and guidance portfolio, including the open contracting data standard and its related tools. Uh, Lindsay, I wanted to get your reactions to Warren's presentation, um, but also to encourage you to uh, talk about this idea of technology for procurement. Um, so the actual technology we've left out of the conversation so far. Uh, specifically, I wanted to pick up on Warren's kind of discussion of this golden thread of principles, practices, ways of working, and talk about kind of the valuable nature of standardizing data uh, for kind of improving that golden thread. Um, so, you know, in that vein, how can we actually strengthen procurement and set the stage for better delivery practices through standardization, something we talked about in our last webinar? Um, could you talk a little bit about how you did this with OCDS um, and kind of uh, what your experience has been learning from governments that are doing that in practice or any other observations? Thank you so much, Nick. And um, thank you, Warren, for that great presentation and uh, for sharing so many of OCP's case studies. <laughs> we appreciate it. Um, and I also really uh, enjoyed hearing the perspectives of uh, David and Godfrey as well. Um, there is so much to say on this topic, so I'll try to be uh, concise, but basically, you know, moving like digital transformation is, you know, the great challenge of our time and something that governments around the world are all, you know, pursuing in terms of uh, getting just just changing the way that services are delivered to citizens and the way that things happen and uh, digitization of PFM and digitization of procurement is going to be a hugely <laughs> enabling or can be a hugely enabling um, transformation to, to achieve. And doing it means thinking about data and outcomes, not thinking about taking paper-based procedures online. So one of the reasons we developed the open contracting data standard was to support this effort to really start thinking about user needs and then how we digitize those needs, how we make these systems uh, work and produce the data that's going to kind of unlock the, the transformation, those transformational outcomes in terms of, uh, you know, having online catalogs, having flexible framework agreements, being able to monitor for integrity, uh, to be able to monitor for sustainable public procurement uh, progress, because, you know, as Warren mentioned, uh, uh, the role of public procurement in mitigating uh, the climate crisis and the example shared from India, you know, shows just how transformational it can be in that regard, being able to monitor life cycle cost, to be able to introduce new procedures, new partnerships. Uh, so I'll definitely be sharing the link uh, to the open contracting data standard uh, documentation in the chat in a bit. But, you know, the standard is a, is a piece of a technical, it's a technical artifact, 
what's really important is to think about those impacts, what they can be in terms of the savings, in terms of the inclusion of uh, SMEs and historically marginalized groups, women-led businesses into the marketplace, and the innovation that can be unlocked once you kind of have uh, a real collaboration happening uh, between government, private sector, civil society, to yield kind of these, these transformational projects that we're looking to achieve. And it's also important to remember that you can only measure the benefits if you have the data, which we will only have if you invest in the process to develop good systems. And one that really requires is stakeholder engagement, uh, political will, change management, resources, expertise, and the capability to design development and ensure successful adoption of electronic procurement systems or any type of digital system, any type of IT sector uh, project. And so um, I'll just list a few. Warren already said so many of the things that OCDS is powering, but I'll, I'll just mention a few others. So, you know, open contracting data is currently powering alert services for potential suppliers, uh, integration with online commercial platforms, integrity monitoring system, uh, systems, facilitation of access to credit services, so like, uh, you know, because small businesses really struggle in public procurement markets because they don't have access to finance and government pays late. So there's all types of solutions. And also DREAM, the new public investment management system for the reconstruction of Ukraine. So, you know, from the very uh, small to the very big. Um, we recently developed a guide on how to do uh, these, pro to how to do electronic government procurement system procurement well, so basically how to structure an EGP project and how to do an EGP project uh, based on the experiences of EGP projects across Africa, including a case study of the experience in Uganda, which is incredibly instructive. Um, it includes detailed guidance as well as reusable tools and templates to help teams to design and implement the digital transformation projects and you know, not to have those projects eventually uh, fizzle out. And this is really related to what um, David was saying earlier, you know, that pre-market engagement is important, but also that pre-market stakeholder engagement is important to really get people on board for the change that's gonna happen and what they need to do to come along and support that change because uh, otherwise uh, things can go in a disastrous um, perspective. I want to I want to talk about some anti-case studies where I've seen things go horribly wrong and the lessons learned, but maybe I'll save that for the second round. But I did want to answer Cathal's question. You know, he asked about and I'm sorry, I accidentally archived the question, Cathal. I don't know how I did that. I'm so sorry. But the question that he asked was, a lot of people in government are nervous about pre-market engagement because they don't want to be seen to be talking to suppliers and that, you know, affecting their, their um, in, you know, impartiality in the marketplace and potentially flagging integrity risks. So the way that we've seen um, pre-market engagement done really well especially in kind of digital, in the digital space, is really through adopting the request for information process and then adopting um, frameworks and catalogs. So it's also about like, what procedures do you have in place to allow the market to participate as flexibly and as transparently as possible? So for example, in the EcoBC project um, that Warren mentioned, you know, part of that project was pre-market request for information saying, hey, you know, like this is the problem that we have. These are some of the targets we're trying to achieve different companies out there in the marketplace, you know, please come and tell us, you know, what 
some of the solutions could be or some of the things we could keep should keep in mind as we design how we're going to move forward. Um, and then uh, similarly, uh, you know, in, Col uh, in Colombia, um, when it comes to kind of uh, IT procurement, they've established various framework uh, agreements for various categories of IT services, such as, you know, cloud services and, and other types of IT services. And then the and then they're able to go to these uh, to the suppliers who are part of these frameworks with requests for information saying, hey, we're thinking about this digital transformation project. Here are the requirements that we have. These are the needs we think we have. These are the problems that we have. And then the various uh, suppliers are able to kind of, who are part of the framework, part of the catalog, are able to kind of put forward, you know, their suggestions, their recommendations. And then, you know, the next stage is, of course, they come back to the market and say, all right, this is, what I think, what we're looking for. So uh, I don't, just to say, there's a lot of people struggling with this, and I'm happy to talk more about, like, the problems and what's going wrong, what some of the solutions might be in the next round. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Uh, lots to unpack there, which I think we'll do in uh, the follow-up discussion. Um, so I wanted to bring in, finally, uh, Snezhna. Uh, Snezhna brings nearly three decades of experience in development and procurement. Since joining the World Bank, she has held various positions in several regions and in the global practice. As an advisor, she is responsible for strategic public procurement program, uh, which covers all three, uh, all thematic areas of public procurement, rather leading the analytical and advisory activities of the program and their cooperation with external partners. Uh, so we've now talked about these ideas of uh, kind of principles, ways of working, uh, good governance, standards. Um, we've even come to think about what their effects on the digitization of the procurement process itself is, um, but also how they can save money, deliver better outcomes. Um, I did want to come to this question of evaluation or, or even measurement, as, as Lindsay referred to, and kind of ask you, you know, how do we know when a procurement system or process has worked well? Um, and how can everything we've discussed so far lead to, to better spending outcomes or, or just better public outcomes uh, for governments? I, I recognize you have a, a depth of experience at the bank working with a wide range of governments uh, of different backgrounds across the globe. So it'd be interesting to kind of see from a comparative perspective uh, what that global view shows you and whether you've learned anything from, from certain countries in particular. Over to you. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, and uh, thank you, Warren, for a very interesting presentation, as well as to panelists who have opened so many avenues to addressing this issue, right? Um, so maybe I start from the bigger picture and then go into specifics. As we know, the public procurement is a critical component of public service delivery, good governance, and sustainable economies. Governments are normally the largest buyers of national economies with public procurement budgets ranging from 10 to 30% of the GDP. To this end, an impact or the impact of uh, any e system, EGP procurement, goes beyond public procurement reforms and effective service delivery. Looking through the lens of the political economy, if we would like to take that look, right? Um, it can be used to promote economic growth, job creation, and socioeconomic development. And in particular, you know, we are focusing on not only the immediate outcomes of uh, improvement of a system, of any system, but also what long-lasting effects on the population of a country um, and economy are. So what we have seen over the years is that countries around the globe are increasingly using electronic procurement systems as a means for processing and managing public procurement activities. The most notable example that come to mind immediately would be those developed in Chile, Bangladesh, Korea, Norway, and Rwanda. In developing countries over the last two decades, <clears throat> public sector procurement reform was influenced by emergence of innovative technologies. 
e-procurement systems vary in development from those that are fully integrated end-to-end -end system to those that are focused and being focused in, sorry, from those that are basic to the fully integrated ones, which are focused on transparency, non-discrimination, uh, equality of access, or rather equity, um, open competition, accountability, and security of the, the security of the process. The existence of the procurement systems provided a space for using innovative technologies for analysis of time and expenditure and contract information. This far, um, the new technologies are often limited to improving data mining, processing of collecting, cleansing, classifying, and analyzing expenditures and data in any in a given organization to identify potential savings of improved efficiency. If we were not to take this to the next level, we would lose potentially a huge possibility of uh, uh, having a better spending, right? Using the procurement more wisely, having a better outcomes, and all of the factors that the panelists talked about come together in, in this space, right? Um, with the advancement of the technology, governments and the procuring entities um, will be able to create the tools that would help in developing smart processes, identifying the bidders, contractors, issues with compliance or potential fraud. Automation of the simple tasks is another one of the areas, which would mean the processing of approvals um, in a much, fa much faster <clears throat> uh, fashion. So the next one would be identifying opportunities to deliver better services, provide incentives for private sector to improve performance and underpin the strategic role of procurement function. Few examples that I mentioned above um, are critical in understanding how important this is. In Chile, for example, government has increased savings of 1.5 times in two years. The Republic of Korea system, CONAPS, has greatly enhanced the transparency of procurement processes, which resulted in, uh, I believe, tripling number of bidders. In Rwanda, the perception survey of EGP system showed a significant improvement of about 82% um, in reduction of fraudulent practices. In Philippines, um, geotagging allowed for education programs in remote and in a past conflict-affected loca locations to be easily and accurately located. Elsewhere, as we know, drones have been used to supply life-saving drugs and emergency supplies. Um, we have examples in Rwanda of that. So the new disruptive technologies from machine learning, artificial intelligence, digit, uh, di distributed ledger technologies, Internet of Things, and others will allow the governments and procuring entities to focus less on compliance and more on delivering value and addressing change, changing and challenging de demands. So <clears throat> when you look at about around the data that has been collected from public sources, it is probably trillions of bytes, right? So to facilitate proactive data mining and a address probability of the processes, the new systems and new technologies are essential. We would be able to better address the conflict of interest, beneficial ownership, um, existence of a legal entity, and so on. <clears throat> so the innovative technologies provide an opportunity to implement the vision of public procurement of increased government efficiency by reducing, definitely, the operating costs and releasing resources for it investing in the core public services. Integration of these new modern technologies will lead to increased transparency and trust in government by addressing the efficiency, effectiveness, and accountability. In turn, this will directly contribute to improvement of the public policy and ultimately service delivery. So um, if we were to take um, what would really mean 
um, what would be the key recommendations for operationalizing any digital uh, systems in or solutions in a public procurement, it would probably be the three main ones, right? Overcoming challenges, whether this is the lack of pot uh, political will and leadership, cost and time to integrate digital solution and uh, resolving or protecting from cybersecurity threats. The second one, probably designing an EGP system by knowing the context, creating the building blocks for digital public procurement, and thoroughly plan the design of the system. And the third, which may be even more important one, is to ensure success, is building a capacity of the key stakeholders and pursuing a gradual and ongoing digital transformation journey. So um, if we were to talk about the evaluation, which is the question that uh, Nicholas asked at the end, um, is basically, if you look at, look at the way that um, in a Advancing, advancing the uh, idea of the life cycle, life cycle costing is that we have seen over the years that many of our clients have been using um, traditional, shall I say, traditional procurement methods, right? And their focus was mostly on the lowest evaluated bid price based on the initial cost, which may or may not be the best value for, or bring the best value for money. So it is critical to consider operations and maintenance costs, including the cost of material service, spare parts and labor. Oh. And in addition, and if you look at uh, if you look at the uh, in particular the investments in the digital technologies, the transition, integration, and bringing the government systems under under single umbrella where possible. And so specifically at the bidding stage, when carrying um, evaluation of the proposals, any evaluation factor that it's neither demonstrable nor verifiable at the stage when when something is taken over by the employer has no significance in choosing, in choosing the bid providing the best value for money. So therefore I would, uh, you know, we can further, of course, unpack on this, but it, but we are, we, are, we are learning from our own operations that uh, adding um, the rated criteria and least uh, rather life cycle cost um, uh, evaluation factors is helping us get to the better results. Um, I will stop here and then maybe answer some of the other questions as we go. Thank you. Great. So I think what we're seeing here, at least from my perspective, is kind of a, a very strong aspiration, one that I think, you know, kind of uh, Warren and David communicated very well, but then some very kind of real challenges, um, particularly when it comes to governance and legislation, uh, when it comes to kind of uh, data and standards, but also kind of actually the change management you need to get people to adopt and use those systems in practice. So Warren, just kind of uh, putting a cap on this section, I, I just wanted to get your kind of overall response to the, the panelists. My, my observation is that there is uh, a huge aversion across the globe to uncertainty and change, and that leads to putting a lot of effort into specifying things up front that are inherently unknowable. So how do we kind of create a culture shift around that? Like how do we actually, um, you know, create a, a culture that allows for more more uncertainty and for uh, more kind of co-creation together and to actually learn by doing? That's a big question, but a really fundamental one. I think there's quite a lot wrapped up in that. Um, I think there's a role for um, uh, the leadership within any public sector organization to create the enabling environments for um, innovation and by which I mean, like in its very, like uh, I suppose, broadest sense of saying, look, anything within the way that services are currently delivered is up for grabs if you think it could be done better, more efficiently, in in pursuit of better meeting the needs of the communities that we're here to serve. And so, 
Um, nobody should feel, uh, and I know it's easy to say, but nobody should feel that they can't come forward and say, do you know what, I think I've, I've got an idea. I think I, we could, that could be done differently. Um, and like, because we're talking about a complex system of, of government and public service delivery, uh, the notion of, of starting anywhere, but follow it everywhere, eventually you will come to all the other bits. And I think there was a question um, in uh, that was asked here to say, you know, because there are so many um, things within that system that are complex, are outdated, um, don't meet user needs, that unless we start to kind of tackle those things, then, um, you know, we, we might just feel completely ossified and not able to do anything and therefore nothing changes. So I think that enabling environment is really critical. We've also mentioned in this um, session today about the importance of bringing people together. Um, and so if we can establish uh, a shared understanding that these things are not working particularly well and there is room for improvement, then that kind of gains that consensus view on that, yes, there is a, an opportunity, but also to get the, the diverse perspectives of different organizations and different teams and, and different life experiences on that problem space, whatever it may be. Um, I think, and I, I, I am um, very guilty of kind of laboring this point, but challenging what is actually law in public procurement and what is actually kind of local law or institutionally ingrained custom and practice. You know, that isn't the law and it should really be challenged if it is currently getting in the way of um, uh, improving public service delivery, delivering better social value for money. Um, and encouraging people to feel more confident about well, saying, well, these are the problems we're trying to solve. Um, this is our, our vision for what a, a better improved service looks like, but what these are the outcomes we're trying to achieve. And this is the impact that we have to have and frame, reframing the conversation in, in a much more constructive way and not putting any restrictions between problem solving, achieving the outcomes and achieving the impact which allows for the innovation from the market, from both private and social sectors. Um, there's, I could go on, but I, I suppose I'll pause and just see if there's any sort of reflections on that or any points that from the other panelists that might want to um, challenge or, or, or support any of those points as well. Yeah, I have a, a follow-up question from the chat, uh, but yeah, any brief reactions to kind of uh, Warren's response there before, before we continue on? I would just I would just say Warren was being very polite there talking about law and other localized. He and I talk very much about law and folklore. It's the folklore that is killing procurement. So we see every day there is a policy that was made 10 years ago and the policy and every year it's just built upon, 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 upon. No one ever goes back and pulls that bit underneath and works out actually. I mean, you think what's changed in the last three years globally, not just in a city or a country or a collection of countries, globally. Has anybody actually gone around and looked at all the relevant procurement or commercial policies that we have to use? And remember, we talk about investing taxpayers' money. I bid for work as a company. If there are lots of policies that my company has to adhere to, it costs more money. Therefore, uh, the, the the cost to the to the taxpayers can be big. Now, I know a lot of those policies still don't they don't even exist. People don't even check them. So, kind of check your policy, check in house first before you go out house. Uh, Lindsay, you raised your hand. 
this what we like to call regulatory dark matter, this can really hamstring digital transformation projects. And we've seen that um, like even there's a there's a, some famous U.S. examples um, of that where, you know, there's this belief that it is a requirement that certain IT architecture be used that's dating from the 90s. And and the amount of complexity that that introduces into the project and that the suppliers who are you know large IT firms are having to now construct the, these very complex architectures in order to satisfy what is very clearly in the contract a requirement but that actually makes no logical sense and is a legacy. So it's really important to, to kind of weed out, um, you know, these legacy uh, policies and in some cases just belief that there is a policy. Like sometimes it's there on paper and sometimes it's not even there. So to really figure out, uh, you know, what's going on. And then the flip side of it also is, um, sometimes where there is an absence of a law or a policy that needs to be in place because user engagement, like thinking about the pain points uh, in one of the questions by Cathal, like the pain point is ultimately like going to be in the process of defining your requirements because you're not uh, being clear with people, you're introducing, you're introducing these, uh, these requirements that don't make sense or you're being overly prescriptive or not clear enough. And so getting that piece of it right is very important. But then also once you have a system, you need to get people to start using this system. And there's gonna be people who don't wanna use the system and how, what laws, policies, incentives, uh, punishments <laughs> need to be put in place to get people uh, using, using things right. And you know, carrots can work better than sticks, but it's important that it's backed up by something uh, because uh, yes, you could appeal to people to do something because it's the right thing to do, but it's also even better if you make it the easier thing for them to do and the required thing for them to do. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, uh, I think one of those points you made about the US example was spoken a lot um, in a recent book by Jennifer Palka, which talks a lot about how these requirements from the 1980s kind of spill down through the life cycle. You know, coming from the U.S. myself, I think that's perhaps like one of the more extreme examples um, because legislation is very kind of sacrosanct in the U.S. Um, but I think there is kind of a real question here of, yeah, how do you separate kind of uh, what's true from the folklore? Um, yeah, I think, Snezhna, you wanted to pick up on that point. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, I mean, what we have seen in experience, right, is that some countries apart from legislation, I'll come back to, uh, to that in a bit, uh, would like to have ideal system from a get-go, right? So you do have the over-designed system that does a multitude of things and has all the bells and whistles. And if you're doing a consultation with your client first and you say, but is there anybody on the planet that can deliver this, right? The answer is no, but we want this. So then you know that you have a problem, right? <laughs> right there from the planning, which I think Warren has also mentioned in his presentation. So you do have to be realistic of what to expect, where do you want it to go? And if you can do it by, you know, um, in mo model or model approach, right? You do the most simple ones and then you do more complex and then you try to address the issues. And we hope that um, from some examples we have seen, by looking 
proactively at the requirements, right? First assessing the system in the country and then uh, from the procurement angle and then looking at the requirements that one system may have, then you can unpack really does everything work, right? If you were to be through prescriptive, then you know procurement wouldn't gain anything. We wouldn't save any funds. It would be almost as doing a paper, but in electronic form, right? You're only making making it easier to, to sort of uh, submit the, the documents, but not really to gain anything. So, um, and, and yes, you know, if we were to look at some of the legal structures in different countries, you know, we still have some traditional regulations that are very old. We have countries that do not have a national procurement laws. They have them at the state level. So it is very complex environment out there, right? Yet some governments are much more, you know, um, successful in delivering a better value through three systems. If we were to take Brazil, right, that has done a huge system through all the states, or we look at Scotland, or we look at Portugal, right? Portugal has a five distinct systems, five distinct suppliers that are combined into the backend system where they're managing different aspects of it. Um, and then, of course, you know, um, it is... I mean, there are a number of examples, right, where this can work, but it does have to be taken in a measured approach and taught and planned and then executed. So um, I'll, I'll start there. We can talk more on different things. Uh, Godfrey, you spoke a lot about the legal framework. So I wanted you to uh, have a chance to intervene and, and kind of respond to what the other panelists were talking about. I think you're on mute. Beg your pardon. Yeah, I, th I think I align with a lot of the conversation here. Uh, first, the importance of co-creation. Uh, even when you're designing systems, you probably need to get the users, but also you need to get the decision makers because you may fail to get funding. So it, it's a whole, uh, uh, pro, uh, let me say it's a whole process of engagement from start to end, because what you need to build is ownership. Now, uh, what, Shnazana, Shnazana talked about, about uh, over designing systems. Very, very typical. Uh, before we set out on our journey, we actually tried to study what others were doing. Uh, and I should also mention that we've been in partnership with the World Bank for a long time as very strong partners in this regard. Uh, first, we wanted to go for off-shelf, uh, systems we get, we realize that probably they are made for other countries. We say, no, it's easier probably to develop uh, a homegrown solution. Uh, it was a very tough conversation because you have many, you have the World Bank, of course, very uh, strong, and uh, you don't even want to appear to be wasting money because we had started the process. But there was constructive engagement, and I think they appreciated where we were coming from. And, and, and say, okay, I think it's better to develop your own system. Now, designing requirements, getting the whole government aligned is a very complex process, but it took us about a year and a half to get to a semblance of a system. As we speak now, uh, again, like uh, Linz has said, uh, one of the speakers in the UK, one of the prime ministers said that you have to speak softly, but carry big stick. So it, 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 it's a bit of carrots and a bit of uh, sticks uh, because we are the treasury, we are the ones leading the implementation. So it's very easy to say, uh, well, we'll not release the money for this quarter 
unless you get onto these systems. But there was a lot of resistance. You, you, sometimes you have to move at the pace of the slowest. And it's so frustrating. That slowest may be a very key decision maker. So you have to walk the journey together. It's negotiation. Uh, but again, I think it's a very long journey to say you have a perfect procurement system. We've just done three years. We think we should be now into a version upgrade because of the emerging feedback that we receive. But so far, I think it's good experience. So yeah, carry a large bag of carrots, but also have a have a stick ready. <laughs> um, okay, I, I did want to come back to uh, one of the questions from the chat. So uh, Lindsay referenced this. Uh, Kahal had made the point. You know, where are the most common pain points that reformers should focus their attention? We've talked about a lot of stuff over and over again. So kind of governance, uh, ways of working, uh, technology, um, principles. That you know, just throwing it to the panel, kind of. You know, what is the one to two areas you think that we can really, you know, make a big difference on uh, in the short term? And, and where do you see a lot of movement? Um, wh where would you kind of direct reformers to to put their attention? Um, brief responses. Um, over to you, everyone. Happy to go first. Um, sure. So I think the uh, and based on experience, um, so the the point when um, providers using uh, David's um, terminology, you know, they're not yet suppliers to government, but and they may not have considered government to be a viable um, uh, client base because of a number of reasons, complexity, bureaucracy, corruption, or per perceptions of corruption. So how do we overcome that, that barrier to opening up the market at the point when it's most crucial, when they can, you know, when the door is being opened? So I think um, focusing on that to to really understand the needs and pain points of the supply base very broadly. What what gets in the way of uh, of SMEs, minority owned business, women owned business from them being able to gain access to the extremely lucrative market, which is government procurement. I I think that's a really important focus point. And from there, a number of different things. Once you've got them engaging, you're actually building the trust that you're listening to them and trying to meet their needs. You can build out from there. Um, I would then would also say, like, who are the primary buyers in government? They're not the procurement people. <laughs> They're the people who are, have a, a delegated authority to spend money on a pro program or project, which is probably about delivering better public services. So I think it's about reimagining uh, uh, the, the different personas and people who are involved in the procurement process to focus on what I would say are the primary users. Anyone else? Lindsay, yeah. Sure, I can talk about the the pain points from the per perspective of an anti-case study. Um, so I will talk about, you know, an OECD country that shall not be named, <laughs> who spent uh, an estimated uh, $4.7 billion on IT contracts last year. Um, one of their projects was a payroll system. So, you know, we're talking about digitization of PFM, pay, digitizing payroll is very important. Uh, it was supposed to save the government $70 million a year centralizing payroll, and it has now cost the government more than $1 billion. <laughs> So this was uh, because of uh, very poor uh, user engagement in the planning of the contract, uh, total dysfunction in the budgeting of the contract, uh, awarding a contract at lowest cost for actually less functionality than the minimum viable product would be, 
uh, rolling it out without testing and then either underpaying or overpaying or not paying civil servants for more than a year. So uh, you can only imagine like the headaches that this has uh, caused. Um, so those were some of the, the pain points to lead to that point. But there's a couple of other like lessons learned, you know, from this context and also from other contexts around the world is uh, one thing to also keep an eye out for is contracts that are too big. Um, the Standish Group uh, did a survey of 25,000 software projects and found that software projects over $10 million where the contracts are over $10 million succeed in only 8% of cases. So really important to kind of keep the contracts smaller and more manageable because under $1 million had a 70% success rate. Similarly, a 2019 US government publication really highly recommends to de-risk uh, custom technology projects to spend less than $2 million on any single contract annually and to have no contract last for more than three years, including option periods. So that goes to what Warren was talking about earlier in terms of being agile. You know, if you kind of say the whole kit and caboodle is a $60 million project, then you're building a lot of risk uh, into the process. Um, and then, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff too, but we're running short of time. So I'll stop there. Uh, Snezhana, I think you had your hand up first. Take it away. Thank you. Just quickly to emphasize that it is important to know your stakeholder and build capacity. And it can go, go you know, in reverse order as well, right? So it is uh, critical to uh, to understand the needs, right? Both of the public and public servants and, uh, you know, governments before anybody embarks on anything anything in procurement, including the systems, right? And then providing the feedback loop on what works and what doesn't. And then of course, as the process goes forward, building the capacity with those who would be using the system and in advance of, you know, any market engagement, educating the uh, public uh, out there and potential bidders on what is coming and what would be interest of the public in, in a particular procurement. So with that, I'll, I'll stop, thanks. Thank you. Uh, David? Yeah, just remember that the, the the public sector doesn't have all the power. You know, if you're a public procurement person, don't think you're just going to keep getting bids. You have to invite these people in. You have to warm them up. You have to entice them into providing for you. That's because public procurement is hard and painful. So think about making it more appetizing. So I talk very much about pragmatic things because that's what I do. So put your formal notice out there, but also have these sessions, video them, record them, put the transcription on, be open, but but please ensure that you are aware that the power uh, shift has, has changed, well, the power sort of uh, place has changed over the last 10 years and the public sector is no longer as powerful as it thinks it is with their spending or investing uh, taxpayers' money. Great. Um, so I wanted to kind of tie one kind of final question I had together with a panelist question. So somebody said that they mentioned they were interested in thoughts from the panelists around a more positive framing of procurement and digital reforms. I'm wondering, you know, we asked the question at the very beginning of this webinar, um, you know, can agile procurement and digital transformation deliver better spending outcomes? 
I'm curious, kind of in that vein of thinking about a positive framing, is agile procurement a, a positive framing to do that? Is that the right framing? Does that resonate with you all? Or, or should we be asking a different question fundamentally? Um, some brief final remarks from everyone. Happy to go first again. Um, I, I think that's part of it. Uh, and David and I talk a lot about it's a, the, the application of agile methods to improve procurement, but that's very much about the how. We need to understand like the why, um, and that, that's why the, you know, the combination between the, the right methods used in the right way for the right purpose, so understanding user needs, community needs, and bringing those things together and reframing how you're going to measure that you're actually achieving those, to Lindsay's point, if you're not measuring, <laughs> you don't have the data, how can you possibly know that you're actually meeting those needs, achieving the outcome and addressing the problem? So I think it's a combination of those things and then the, the culture and capability around working in the right way to achieve those things as well. Great, uh, I'll just go around the room, uh, Godfrey. Yeah, I want to agree with worrying, it's more of agile methodology rather than agile procurement. Uh, but I, I also wanted to speak to why, why I say agile methodologies that the contexts are normally different and they keep evolving. So you have to be more adaptive, you have to be more responsive, you have to respond to feedback. So it may not be the way you start is not the way you end. So it's probably uh, inbuilt into the delivery whether you're delivering a system, whether you're designing a project, a procurement, you're beginning a procurement process, I think it's more to, it's, it's a good thing to inbuild this agility. Now the constraint normally for public sector is the legislation, regulation, that mechanical framework with which you have, you are judged. So many actors fear to deviate from a, a simple rule Yet it will probably deliver results faster and better results. I think it's the issue for reflection. Thank you so much, uh, Lindsay. Yeah, maybe building from what God Godfrey said, it's it's almost like what we need is agile project management, and what we need is empowered procurement because the <laughs> the challenge is that uh, yes, you can tell people be agile, be flexible, but then they come up against a system that is everything but agile and flexible and so they need to be empowered uh you know by senior leadership with uh with new policies new frameworks uh the freedom to think creatively uh to try new things um to to, to be more uh yes more agile more experimental more flexible um but but they can't do any of those things if they're not empowered so i would encourage us to think about empowered procurement. I, I love that idea. I think disempowerment is across the board one of the things that we see leading to stagnation in digital transformation and delivery of outcomes, certainly treating procurement as well. Um, so I do like that framing. Uh, Snejana, over to you. Yes, I, I guess this highlights the need for having a real champions, right? If you have people who are going to be supportive of the projects and who are going to empower those who are working on the digital transformation projects, it's, it is at the end of the day, one of the critical uh, components. I do agree with uh, my uh, co-panelists that uh, looking at this as more of an agile approach rather than agile procurement, although, you know, agile procurement is a completely different uh, 
I guess, term, right, that we use in, in some cases. Um, so, so I think it would be important to, to align um, in the assessment of a needs to align where, where you stand, who are your best champions, are they the ones, are they the right ones that can empower the uh, project uh, implementing entity or authority, and then uh, regularly check in to ensure that if there are uh, stumbling blocks, there are, there are further delegation that could help uh, with implementation. The critical critical part on this is that sometimes, as Lindsay mentioned, the projects do exceed their budget. So you do have to have those who are willing to, uh, to help when the rubber hits the road. Thank you. Uh, and David, let's finish off with you. What do you think of the term empowered procurement? <laughs> Well, I, I I love it. Firstly, I think it's great. But again, let's just not just focus on procurement. The procure, procurement is the getting of things, products, services, stuff, ultimately a contract that involves investing and spending taxpayers money. Please, please remember that you eventually end up with a contract where you're giving someone some money. So make sure that all the pre-procurement work you do, marketing engagement, the whole thing we just spoke about for 90 minutes, make sure it's going to work. If it's not going to work, don't do it. It's got to work, and it's got to work for buy side and supply side. And remember, like buy side, we spoke a lot today about buy side having um, stakeholders and all those things. So does supply side. Supply side has huge tiers of large or and small local and international suppliers. You have to consider everything, else uh, it's not going to get delivered. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, so we've discussed a lot today. I think I think we've shown that you know agile procurement and digital transformation can lead to better spending outcomes, uh, but it's complicated. Um, it's a really difficult and uh, you know long winding road. The commercial life cycle uh, is very wide ranging, and there's a lot of different stakeholders and incentives involved. Um, so a lot of food for thought from our panelists. Uh, I really appreciate the discussion, uh, Warren. As our kind of primary discussant, any final thoughts from you before we wrap up? Well, if we could condense this, and thank, firstly, thank you, if we could condense this into um, some uh, next steps and perhaps some um, break-off uh, topics of conversation, because there is a lot in there. We do need to unpack these things and then kind of bring it back together in some shape or form. I think we'd be very open to, to discussing that as well. Thank you so much, Warren. Um, so thank you so much for joining our second Budget Bite. Uh, we're hoping to do another one in September. Uh, so this should be a roughly every other month series uh, tackling kind of new and important topics uh, at the intersection of digital and public finance. Uh, this has been such an important discussion for us today because we're really trying to start a conversation around how can we improve the funding and delivery model for digital transformation. And I think this is uh, one of the, the key ways for us to get started in doing that. Um, but it's a long road ahead and there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, and we'll be continuing to do that work in uh, the weeks and years ahead uh, with all of these lovely folks uh, as part of our community of practice. So thank you all for joining and for participating in this hub webinar. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we hope that you all stay in touch and, and share your insights with our community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye, everyone.